Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information, and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, it's Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, the place to go for all our show notes and links to all our news articles and also this week a link to the book that you can purchase where we interview a real author, Mark, not just you and I, a real author who has authored, I think she said six books so far and there's another one on its way. But that is to come. It is episode 70, Mark, this one, February the 15th, 2018. And thanks to our sponsors, Chemical Essentials, Specialised Animal Nutrition and Microchips Australia. How are you, Mark? I'm great, Brendan. I am really, really good. Life. What is, have you been up to? Well, just the usual, you know, um, working, um, trying to make sure that uh, all the animals that we get to see uh, are going okay. Um, I've have had, I've taken a couple of days where I've, um, you know, shot down to Hexham Swamp or up to Weirakata and tried to get some photos. Haven't been getting the best photos lately, um, so that's been a bit of a downer. But um, you always see some interesting things in the bush and um, and it provides a good counterpoint to the, uh, the stress, the, well, not stress, but just the pressure of making sure that we do the very best by the patients we get to see. The day-to-day grind sometimes is exactly that, isn't it, Mark? Well, I did something a little bit different, as you know, Mark, and we haven't spoken about it. I took my lovely wife, Annette, Annie, out on a date. I think this is the first date we've gone for about 10 years, Mark. So I surprised her. It was sort of a little bit of a delayed um, anniversary, wedding anniversary um, um surprise mark and and i took her to see a play the melbourne theater company and we saw a play called the lady in the van mark and it's a a fairly um well it's probably i was going to say it's fairly well known it may may not be very well known but it's based on the true story of a of a playwright and a writer alan bennett who befriended what what he called was a hobo woman who was a rather smelly old lady who temporarily parked her little van outside his London home. Um, I think it was in the 80s or so that it happened and and, um, the temporary parking of that van lasted for 15 years, Mark, Um, and and it's his sort of talking to himself um, as he's writing a play about this story, this true story about this woman who who parked her van outside his little house and eventually moved the van inside his yard for most of that time. And um, the sort of unravelling of, of the story of, of this um, this person's life, this mysterious woman who um, lived in, in the van. Um, so, yeah, that's what we did. I think, I'd, well, I'm, you, you want me to give it a score, I'm no, sure. No, before, before you give it a score, no. I want, I've seen the movie. And, yes. And the movie, you know, in the way of movies is a fairly linear story, um, a bit emotional, um, but it, um, it sort of, uh, I've got, I've got no concept of how the play would have gone and, and who was in the play. And yeah, well, 
interesting you should say that, Mark. Um, I've, I've, I haven't seen the movie and I have got it. We were going to watch it today, actually. I've got it at home here. Um, so I'll let you know what we think about the movie. But the play, yeah, well, it was the way it was written. It was um, Alan Bennett is the name of the writer who, who had the lady, this Miss Mary Shepherd, who parked a van outside his house and then inside his yard. Um, and it's the younger Alan who is talking to the older Alan who um, once he's written the book. So he has his two sort of alter egos, I suppose, chatting to each other at, at the same time. So he has there's two um, actors on stage who are both dressed up, one looking an older version of himself or vice versa, and um, introduce the topic of, of the lady. And, um, yeah, there is a real van that comes on stage at certain times um, and there's probably only about five or six actual actors in the in the play um so it was um yeah it was quite well done as far as that goes i i I don't think the writing sort of gelled that well so you'll see with the score i finally give but yeah the reason why i i booked this particular play is of the main actor who was in it is um is um i've gone um, blank. It's Miriam, Miriam Margoyles, um, and I think a lot of our listeners will know her as Professor Sprout in the Harry Potter films. So she's um, now lives in Australia, I think, most of the time, but she divides the time between England and Australia, and um, she's one of these people that has an amazing presence on stage, so she certainly stole stage so she played the the lead character obviously um and has most of the most of the um stage um both speaking and metaphorically but um she she just has this amazing presence and and it was just a, a joy to watch her mark because she was fantastic um so i would i would love to go and watch her in any sort of play but um you know, so that brought up my score because Miriam was in it. Not that I've seen her before, but she was she was great. Um, and we were lucky enough to I score I I I purchased the the tickets right in the second row, Mark, right in the middle in the second row. So quit we could um, we could um, feel the spittle from people when they were getting angry on stage. Um, so it was good to be up close and personal um, during the during the performance there, but. I think it must have been pensioner night, Mark. It must have been pensioner discount because I reckon we um, the average age was seventy five or eighty of um, of the people that were there, and I'm I'm so glad that there wasn't a fire or some sort of accident because it was in the the, the playhouse, which is in a basement in in Arts Victoria in, in central Melbourne. And gee, if they had to evacuate it quickly, I think I'd be. Falling over all the all the um, all the um, Zimmer frames and the and the um, walking oh, sticks Brandon, to get out, Mark. I'd be, I'd be you would um, you wouldn't have been over tripping people. over them. You would have been trampled. And have you seen how those people move <laughs> things? You would have been in trouble, and, my friend. And the scary thing is, we're probably not too far off that ourselves, Mark. Um, but so, it, I think it is. But a, it, it, um, with, live theatre um, is definitely. A different experience, and um, and I, I do appreciate uh, how much you and Annie would have enjoyed it, um, and um, and it is a, um, a an experience that because it takes a particular investment in time and and uh, effort, um, I think um, it doesn't surprise me. I think 
people of a certain age are more likely to make that um, that uh, uh, effort to connect with live theatre. I think I don't want to generalise here, and I certainly don't want to get into a generational battle. But um, I don't know that um, that our uh, our millennial friends are as keen on live theatre, maybe as as uh, um, their their baby boomer and more senior. Um, and I used to, yeah. I mean, it's the first play I've been to for for a long time. But we used to love going to plays, and there's something special about watching a live performance, whether it's a, a you know a band or or a play or, or something something similar. Um, the, the the only performances that I really struggled with, Mark, was um, I struggled with ballet or opera, and I have been to probably only two or three of those in my time, but um. Maybe on too much of a too much of a bogan to enjoy those, Mark. Um, I don't know, but I, I never quite um, appreciated them um, the way others seem to appreciate them. And, and having said that, the other um, apart, apart from the apart from the age gap um, at, at the um, at the theatre the other night this week, um, I. I don't think I've, we've, we've, we felt a little bit out of sorts, um, standing in the foyer there, Mark, um, before and after the show. Um, I think it's a, a completely different class of people, um, uh, rather than the riffraff that, um, Annie and I are, um, where they're all sipping their, their champers and, um, talking about, um, their holiday houses down the peninsula. And, um, we just felt a little bit, um, a little bit, um, like sore thumbs, I suppose, um, standing there waiting to jump in. But then we, we, we stuck it up them when we got the front row seats or the second yeah, exactly. row seats and turned around exactly. and, and I gave them the finger before the show started, Mark, I tell you that. I think it's only so that was our night. familiarity, you know. I think um, you can – the more that you go, the more comfortable you feel and, you know, you can still, like we do, behave like bogans and um, – and uh, but you're not as self conscious conscious after you've been going for a few times. So I encourage you to keep going, Brendan. I'll be looking forward to the next live theatre review. What? How many points did you give it? Well, uh, I think overall the production itself, or the directing, and the actual writing of it, and uh, and that's where I think. And there's a book of it's obviously based on on the book. Um, and I think we might read the book at some stage. Um, it just didn't gel very well mark apart from miriam's performance which i loved um and we both loved so i'm going to give it about six and a half out of ten oh, mark. That's um, harsh. I, know I know it's tough but um yeah i think it's i think i've, I've, I've got to be honest you have a responsibility to the people who listen to us <laughs> not to make things up that's right so so that's what i give it mark but um yeah we we thoroughly enjoyed our night um um on our date there, and um, yeah, it's been a while since we've been out um, courting. Um, as I say to Annie, gee, this reminds us um, when we used to go courting when we were courting, and, and she always laughs when I say that. Say courting, we're not in the eighteen hundreds. Your two daughters and, um, would love that turn of phrase. Yes, yes, and I always say, gee, do you remember when we were courting and we went to this restaurant or this show or, or whatever? Yes, so there we go, and um, I, yeah, I'm hoping to go to an, some other event with my lovely wife within the next ten years um, when we can get away from the girls. So that's what I've been up to, but it's good to get away from the work side of things, isn't it, Mark? Um, as you said, like you're getting out with the photography, which is something I need to c- 
keep doing more and more and you always put me to shame with the amount of time you're out there away from work photos. <laughs> yes that too that too well let's um we should jump into our news stories mark um and um, I can't remember whether we said we had any other reviews. That can be our review this week, um, the play. Um, so I'll take the first news story, I think, this week, Mark, and that is a, and I'm a little bit ambivalent about this one, Mark. It's the scheme to improve health of brachycephalic dogs. And as you know, we're, we're not too um, keen on the breeding of these squashed-in face dogs, and um, I suppose it's one step forward, isn't it, Mark? Um, and this was reported on <laughs> member of uh, the MRCVS online, and it is about the University of Cambridge and the Kennel Club Charitable Trust has launched a new health screening scheme for French Bulldogs, Pugs and Bulldogs. So basically, Mark, what they have done is do a supposed scientific assessment where they can use a predefined protocol to grade the dogs between zero, zero and three. Dogs graded zero are free of the respiratory signs of the brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome, while dogs graded three show severe respiratory signs. And the aim is to have the scheme where kennel club registered dogs will then have the scoring system mandatory, I suppose, in, in the future, and then it will be noted on the registration certificate for that dog. And if it's a grade three dog mark, it will be um, strongly suggested that um, those dogs should not be bred from. But um, And we in Australia, Brendan, we, we really can see, and um, in case you don't recognise, I'm dosing what I'm about to say with a significant amount of sarcasm, we really see the benefits of these scoring systems in, uh, in the hip scoring um, arrangement. There's been such a huge improvement in hip dysplasia as a result of the uh, scoring system. And no breeder, no breeder that I've ever heard of, met, undertaken to even hear of at a distance has ever taken advantage of the situation to breed a dog that might um, be suffering a bad hip score. So I'm sure this scoring system is just going to overturn the whole <laughs> problem associated with dogs that uh, uh, break yes. airway syndrome. It's a start, isn't it, Mark? It is a start. And at least people trying to trying to put a little wedge in it and, and get things moving and um, eventually stop the breeding of these dogs. I, I, um, I, yes. I share your ambivalence, Brendan, because I think, um, uh, you know, the first step to solving any problem is to admit that there is one. And at least, you know, if you're talking about a scheme um, you, and, you know, bad score and you, you're using words like obstructive airway syndrome, you're, you're admitting there's a problem. But, geez, I don't know, mate. I um, I think the solution is to not breed dogs that have squashed in vases. Um, Absolutely. And Absolutely. I mean, this, this story, I think, your second story follows on similar lines, Mark, um, to this one, um, once we get to that as well. But what is your first story? It's a bit bit of a lighter one you've you've introduced, which is good. We need a bit of a lighter. And we one. do. Uh, I've noticed a pattern with our stories that um, that uh, you know the Mother Nature Network is a wonderful resource. We take great advantage of that. And the cool thing about it, Brendan, is that um, I often find 
the stories we talk about are spread across other social media over the weeks or months um, that uh, that after and I like to think that's because we've promoted them and I give due credit to the Mother Nature Network for cracking a lot of these uh, stories but they do tend to be more uplifting and um, and positive stories and so this one um, are seven spectacular facts about yaks um, and I've got to admit Brendan that while I'm pride myself on being well versed on, on on many species of animals yaks are one that um that uh you know i, I probably would have to put my hand up and say i didn't know a lot about um so it was a bit of an interesting story so um we'll quickly bounce through just a few of these facts yes. um how um uh, how similar to that one of the things that ran through all the facts was how similar that you know there are species of um, uh, uh, from the gen- bovines boz uh, boz what's their scientific name boz uh, mutus the wild yak and the domestic yak um, uh, grunians boz grunians um, uh, so and aurochs uh, which uh, the likely precursor species to all the um, large uh, boz animals around the world, the yaks and cattle. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting to sort of put together that uh, little piece of um, history. Um, they've been domesticated for a long time and yak milk, hardly surprising um, yak milk may be a superfood, Brendan. It may be um, that uh, it has more amino acids, calcium and vitamin A than cow milk, um, and uh, and um, it's the key ingredient in yak butter tea. Have you had yak butter tea, Brendan? I must admit it is one thing I've yet to experience, Mark, um, the superfood of yak butter tea. Well, that's something that we'll have to put on the schedule for us to... Uh, it doesn't look very appetising in, in very that picture, does it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but far be it from us to judge just on appearance, we'll have to give it a crack at some point if... Well, the, the China Nutrition Society declared yak milk to contain more amino acids, calcium and vitamin A than cow milk, Mark. So that's the authority that... Um, and is it any surprise, Brendan, that um, that yak ranching is on the rise in North America? Um, that uh, the um, Denver Post uh, announces that um, through the um, president of the International Yak Association, um, that there are more than five thousand registered yaks in North America, um, and quite a few unregistered ones. Um, and that they're, you know, touted as having small hooves. They damage the mountainous terrain less. They eat. They, they have a better food conversion ratio. Um, geez, they really sound not only like animals that produce superfood, but uh, they're super animals themselves. Do we get brachycephalic yaks? <laughs> I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do. And the one thing that um, they produce that uh, the other boz species don't is fibre. And uh, yak fibre is apparently the new cashmere. So I think we'll have to buy a vet guru's beanie made of yak fur um, as one of our next, you know, pro- promotional uh, merchandising opportunities, Brendan. Perhaps it's something I'll need to try and source when I head over to the um, to the um, 
Asian region a little bit later this year, Mark, as you know, which we will keep it quiet at the moment where I'm heading off to. You can't help um, yourself. You won't be able to keep it quiet. I will try and source some cashmere from the yaks. Um, And, yeah, those beanies look pretty... um, Pretty groovy. I can see myself wearing one of those, Mark. Um, you probably can, yes. Um, and, um, yeah, I can probably see you wearing nothing much more than um, a yak beanie in your little recording studio um, in the heat of You get um, one while you're over there. In the heat of summer. I'll post the pictures. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, I now know more about yaks than I did uh, five minutes ago, Mark, so thank you very much. And... Um, although I'm a little bit sceptical about yaks as um, being um, yak milk being the superfood. I always, as soon as I hear superfood, I know it's um, a load of um, garbage, a load of tripe, a load of tripe. And although tripe's probably a superfood as well. I think we share our uh, our healthy disrespect for people that attribute um, characteristics to foods that are beyond the average nutritional analysis. Yep. I, I'm, I, yes. I, 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 well, let's just say we'll try our yak butter tea and we'll, <laughs> we'll decide whether, that, that, in, in, whether it deserves the superfood title. What's your next? You, you just like saying you just like saying yak, <laughs> I do love don't you? Saying you yak. love the word. <laughs> yes, I do. You, <laughs> you've nailed me in one. I'm embarrassed to admit. <laughs> So my second story, Mark, I, I think I need to tread carefully. I think with you do. It, um, <laughs> it is one from the Mother Nature Network, our favourite disinformation website, and good information as well, I must admit. Um, are you drawn to male or female dogs? And the article talks about some people thinking that one gender of dog is smarter or sweeter than, than the other. And the thought that when it comes to dogs, Mark, many of us are apparently sexist, like having male or female pups. Um, a lot of people end up liking just the female. So, so I've got a bit dog. of a question before you go into this in more detail because this upset me at the very beginning. Um, so gender, 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 gender. Gender is a word that um, is uh you know, is a social construct. It means the, um, you know, it it doesn't refer to. Um, that's that's where you know all the current uh, arguments about um, gender fluidity come from. That um, that some people think of gender as the whole male female dichotomy, the the biological assignment of uh, sex, when gender is not that gender is a social construct and so it does have a particular fluidity and my argument then brendan is that it that word doesn't apply in this article i I just put that out there at the beginning so so having jumped off my high horse um now you've confused me totally there mark um but i i it was something i was going to touch on the whole the whole concept of what is gender, but you've answered it or you've introduced <laughs> the topic um, beautifully there, Mark. So I, I, I won't go into any further detail about that. But, yes, it was something I was going to going to mention. And it was partly because, yeah, I, 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 I didn't like this article, not just because of what we spoke about, the, the, although it is all about gender, this article. Um, um, 
just the way it was written and, and um, the quotes um, within that article. I think it was just a bit of a fluff piece. So maybe I should stop no, no, now keep, with um, the article because I'll just dig a bit of a hole well, because, you know, it's got the classic quotes like, a female dog will love you but a male dog will be in love with you. And it's a common thread in male versus female conversations on the dog lines and the dog websites and, and Facebook pages and that. Many dog people saying male dogs are more affectionate while female dogs are smarter, but they tend not to want constant attention um, and v- validation that the boys often seem to crave. And oh, gee, it gets worse, Mike. They say female dogs can be moody and independent while male dogs can be clingy and silly. Um, so... Do you think there's an element of projection and anthropomorphism in this article? Yeah, well, we well we won't talk about the bathroom habits and and the thoughts about having a male a male um, dog that will lift its leg versus a female, which will um, um, head off into a into a corner and not be as obvious. Um, so, yeah, I'd, it started off when I saw the. This title, and as you always point out, clickbait, um, are you drawn to male or female dogs? That's I was drawn to the article, um, but the more I read um, down this article, the more I thought, I don't like this article. Um, so why did I put it on? Well, it's one that even though we're going to have a link to it, I think you should not go to our website and click on it and um, encourage this article because I, I didn't like it at all, Mark. Um, that's my comment about this article. I was hoping it was going to be a fun little, um, a bit, a little bit like the, the your yak article was fantastic, and um, I just wish mine lived up to the standard of your your spectacular facts about yaks. I think you. I think I think. So, you what's like your last story, Mark? Well. Um, mine uh, harkens back, I suppose, to the the um, you know the the sorts of. Um, Utilitarian at- attitudes that some people have to animals. Um, it's the uh, it's the it's a report on the shocking use of jiggers in horse racing. So everyone will be aware that uh, trainer Darren Weir um, has uh, has um, three charges of alleged possession of electronic devices designed to give shocks to horses. Um, and perhaps, Mark, for our international listeners, which are a fair few, you might want to just broaden that a little bit and talk about um, um, how high up in the hierarchy he was and what, what horses he had trained. And uh, he, you're quite right to point out that um, uh, he's um, trained a number of uh winners of the Melbourne Cup, their most prestigious race here in uh, Australia. And um, so it would be not an exaggeration to say he's at, you know, the very pinnacle of the uh, um, of the training profession, the horse race, tr- the horse racing training profession. Um, he definitely has been a celebrated leader in uh, Victoria um, in this field of endeavour. So it's a... Uh, you know, it's a genuine um, jarring shock to uh, to see that he's been um, caught with uh, electric shocking devices, um, which are uh, designed to um, alter the behaviour of horses during a race. Um, and uh, these electric devices are commonly known as jiggers, um, and uh, and they. Um, 
I don't, it's an interesting thing. I wasn't aware specifically of of how they were used. Um, uh, and they, the general principle, I think, Brendan, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is that um, uh, just like the stimulation of um, of the whip, um, the, they provide a um, discomforting and uncomfortable sensation, um, which tends to cause the animal to be scared and maybe exercise its uh, um, the increased flight aspect of its flight fright. Uh, flight, fright, flight, blah, 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 flight or fight <laughs> response. Um, and so, uh, and interestingly enough, the, the, uh, the process often does not involve having these battery powered shock devices, uh, actually at a race. The horses have them applied during training. Um, and then the jockeys will, um, you know, uh, bump the stock of the whip um, in the location that they previously have placed the uh, the jigger. Um, and so during the race, the horse will anticipate the delivery of the shock uh, because of the pressure of the butt of the whip. Um, so it's cheating, Brendan. It's out and out cheating. It's cheating through a purpose um, that's designed to scare the horse. Um, it's uh, meant to uh, impact the horse's performance, um, and um, and it uh, you know it obviously is um, well just plain and simply wrong, um, uh, a, an unacceptable thing to do. But the whole discussion is filled with like little conflicts, like um, you know, there's an immediate immediate. Um, uh, you know, a version, you talk to anyone about this and they go, oh, how could that possibly be? That's just obviously so completely wrong and cruel. Yet uh, these devices are legal for the control of dogs in New South Wales that, um, in association with, um, you know, with uh, uh, a wireless fence. You know, they, they, they people will put a, a wire around a property without a physical fence um, and uh, and um, and the dogs will wear a collar and as they go under that wire they'll be zapped and so they'll avoid leaving the property they'll, so there'll be an, uh, a type of wall uh, an electrical barrier um, that prevents them getting away those things are uh, entirely legal and um, and the same horses who uh, are jiggered, as it were, um, they it's perfectly um, legal during racing to belt them with a whip to make them go faster. We, we uh, while 70% of people here in Australia disapprove of that, there's still um, 30% who approve of that, and it's legal according to the rules of racing. Um, but, um, but we frown on um, electrical jiggers in the particular circumstance that Darren's used them in. So I do think there's an element of... Um, well, inconsistency in that story, Brendan? To put it subtly, yes. Um, well, you know my thoughts on this sort of thing, Mark, is that if, if there's money involved, with betting especially, um, and animals, then obviously some people, not all, but some people, maybe a fair number, 
maybe a low number, um, will go to lengths that won't be in the best interests of the animals. I think and, that, um, that... You know, we've spoken at length about um, the greyhound racing industry and, and the expose of some of the things, shocking things that have gone on, not to pardon a pun, that have occurred in the greyhound industry with the live baiting of animals um, and... and um, and the exposure of that and, and the shocking wastage of, of the greyhounds um, with the breeding of them and um, the industries will then say, oh, look, we'll, we'll clean ourselves up and that's in the past and um, it won't happen again. Um, that I'm sure the similar sort of things are happening with these, um, with, with thoroughbred racing, not just with jiggers. I'm sure there's other, other techniques that, well, to be honest it, or to be blunt to, uh, I'd expect to inhumane, um, which still go on because they encourage the horses to run faster. I thought it was interesting uh, that um, uh, Racing Victoria's Chief Executive Giles Thompson said that the incident was a bruising for the reputation of the racing industry. I think he over overestimates the reputation of the racing industry just between you and me, Brendan. I think um, that that people have gotten to the stage where they sort of almost expect this sort of behaviour from, um, from uh, as you said, the circumstance where there's a nexus between money and, and animals. Um, the, the, it's almost par for the course. Yes. Yes. And... Gee, one of the quotes there was from the UK's Companion Animal Welfare Council that produced a report on electric pulse training aids, as they call them, EPTAs, Mark, and it was suggested that there, and this was in 2012, they suggested that there are currently around 350,000 350, mark of these devices in the UK, although the number in active use is unknown. So... Yeah, that's a lot of um, a lot of jiggers, Mark. A lot of jiggers. <laughs> and speaking of jiggers, um, I want to bring it back around to yaks, Mark. And um, in your yak article, um, I noticed that you didn't go through all seven of the fantastic facts about yaks. You have encouraged um, me to be a little bit, I, you know, in a sense, cut to the chase and not waffle. Well. I think you deliberately left left off the yak racing um, was one of the um, notes there, and it was talking about yak racing as an active um, sport, I suppose, if if you could call it that. And it had a link to a video, Mark. You'll have to click on it and have a bit of a look. It was a, a link to a yak race um, in Asia, and um, yeah, I, it was. Um, a little bit disturbing, um, the yak race. Uh, I think calling it a race would be would be um, um, a stretch with it. And, um, yeah, I uh, wouldn't be surprised if, if they used a few jiggers um, before the races there, although by the look of it, most of the jockeys got thrown off the yaks and um, they just ran to the finish line on their own um, with it. So, yeah. Um, there we go. I brought it back to um, yaks. Um, they are pretty amazing animals, and I certainly am looking forward to um, a beanie, a yak beanie, Mark. And yeah, we'll have to get the the vet guru's logo on a yak beanie. Um, they'll sell like um, well, uh, there'll be at least they'll sell two, two one. One, one for you and one for me. Yes. <laughs> well, let's. Um, Let's cut to our interview, Mark, and um, we have a pre-recorded interview um, for our main topic here, and that's with Laura 
We didn't um, ask how we pronounce her surname. Um, I, I called her Laura Graves. Graves, Graves. So either that's how you pronounce it or she thinks I'm a rude bastard now. <laughs> well, probably both, Mark. Um, so Laura's uh, an author and she's written um, several books and she had, uh, reading her blurb here, she has spent more than 20 years writing for newspapers and magazines in Australia and around the world and she was the former editor of Dog's Life magazine and she's a freelance writer now and uh, she's written, she calls herself a mad or a crazy dog lady and we talk she about owns it, Brendan. She owns it. And she does. She is a, she is a mad dog lady, crazy dog lady. Um and um, it was a real pleasure to chat to Laura. Um, and we had a couple of technical difficulties with the recording, but I think it all got put together fine. Hopefully, not as won't come across as as bad as our podcast a few weeks ago, where where it fell in a bit of a heap there um, initially. And yeah, we we were sent a review copy each. Um, thank um, to thanks to Laura's um, publisher of her current book, which is called The Rescuers. And uh, the subtitle is Incredible Stories of Life-Saving Dogs. And it's each chapter is a, a true story of a dog that has saved somebody's or a family's life in one way or another. It might be physically saving them. It may be um, mental health um, issues and, and helping people come out of deep depression, for instance. And, um, yeah, we, we had a bit of a chat to Laura about her book and also dug a little bit deeper, didn't we, Mark, about the writing process. We were hoping to get a little, a, a few tips about how Mark and I, we can both um, become better writers, even if we're doing our technical writing. And unfortunately, I think um, we'll both be um, poor writers, Mark, um, by the sound of things. I think Laura just has the knack for it. Um, and, um yeah, we'll cut to the interview with Laura. Well, welcome, Laura. And as we heard from that intro, you have a new book out, The Rescuers. And before we get to that, Laura, I was just reading your bio and that bit about the crazy dog lady. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Well, in my case, what it means is I am crazy about dogs <laughs> and I will talk about dogs to anyone who'll listen all day long if they'll let me. Um, but I've kind of co-opted that term. Um, you might have heard the term crazy cat lady, which is often leveled at women in quite a pejorative sort of way. Um, and I've never really understood that because I don't see how there's anything wrong with loving animals and thinking that they're amazing and wanting to make the world a better place for them. So if people want to call me a crazy dog lady, that's absolutely fine with me. Well, crazy dog lady, how many dogs do you have at home at the moment, Laura? I have two. I have two dogs that live with me. Um, I would never say I own them because they're their own people and they, they just choose to hang out here. <laughs> and, what, and what breed are they and how old are they, Laura? They are Nova Scotia duck tolling retrievers. Um, which most people have never heard of, although I'm sure being vets you have. Um, Tola is the shorthand version for that. Um, so I've got Tex, who's 11, and Delilah, who's 8. Uh, excellent, excellent. Well, uh, I can see where you're coming from with the book, it being the, the crazy dog lady. And this is not the only book that you've managed to have published, but also I think you put mention of dogs in most of your books. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, yeah. So The Rescuers, which is um, my latest book, is actually my sixth book. It's my third non-fiction collection of dog stories. 
Um, I've also had three novels published and they're all romantic comedy fiction, um, but they all have extensive supporting casts of canine characters in, in all of them. Oh, you always need a dog in a book. That's my theory. I think that's the best way to go. And we often, in in our podcast, Mark and I are often um, trying to juggle our dogs um, running in and out of the room as we're trying to record the podcast at the same time, um, Laura. And at the minute, my two greyhounds, and I've got two greyhounds, um, are outside at the minute. So if you hear a bit of scratching or a bit of whining, it's 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 not me complaining about Mark. It <laughs> is me trying to quickly nick out while Mark um, asks you a question and let the dogs in. So um, let's talk about your book, um, Laura. Now, I enjoyed the chapter about the – what was it called? I'll just flick over to it here. It was a chapter about uh, – Janae and her Labrador Weimarana mix cult, which was the service dog. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thing that I found fascinating was the depth you had in some of these chapters of, of, of what the owners told you about their often tragic stories, I think, um, and also uplifting stories about their dogs and, and their owners, as, as as you put, put it. Um, How do you manage to sort of eke out the the information from these owners or are they are they quite willing to sort of give you everything about their dogs because they because they enjoy them and are attached to them and love them so much that's a really good question actually and um it's something that I think a lot about I I kind of ask myself that question about you know why the dog owners that I interview for my books tend to be so forthcoming because whenever I get in contact with someone for the first time um, and ask them if they'll be willing to participate in the book. I'm always very aware of the fact that I'm asking them to share stories about often the worst day of their lives or some really traumatic or devastating, heartbreaking experience that they've been through. And I I almost feel a little bit bad about asking them, you know, like, am I being intrusive or, or am I just asking too much? But in literally every yes. case, um, the owners have not only been happy to participate, but almost seem that it almost seems that they think I'm doing them a favor in a sense because they love to have the opportunity to, to talk about their dogs and what their dogs have done for them. And in some cases, the dogs have passed on. And so they're really happy to be able to kind of talk about the legacy that the dog has left behind. So it always does strike me as such a privilege and such an honor to be able to share those stories. And and I'm very kind of cognizant of the fact that people do put a lot of trust in me to talk about some really personal, really difficult things. So, and, you know, once we get kind of past that, then um, I interview everyone uh, either by phone, sometimes in person if they're in Australia, but often they're overseas. So it's by phone or by Skype. And we just chat for as long as they have really. So it's usually at least an hour, often longer. Sometimes it's over several sessions. There's one story in The Rescuers, um, a woman called Rachel who lost her husband very suddenly and shockingly and and uh, really struggled to kind of find any joy in life until she, she adopted this elderly dog called Grace and, and Grace helped her kind of come back to life. But the loss of her husband is still such a difficult thing for Rachel to talk about that we, I actually needed to interview her over several, uh, it was weeks in the end, short um, conversations here and there whenever she felt up to it. And as soon as if we were talking and, and, and she just felt that she couldn't continue, she would 
often just hang up quite abruptly and be very apologetic later, like, oh, you know, I'm sorry if I was rude, but, you know, I'm just so grateful to people um, for, for feeling that they can open up to me in that sense that I'm more than happy to talk as and when people feel comfortable doing it. And it just leads. Absolutely. And I, and I don't, you know, I, I wasn't surprised at that at all. And I think Mark would probably say the same thing. We certainly get that type of thing with our clients who are bringing their animals into them, whether they're dogs or lizards or, mm. or snakes or birds. And, and they tend to unload and they like to tell you their life story sometimes about um, not just about their animal but about their children and, and um, where they've grown up and, and they bring it back around to the animal in question in front of them. But it's it's amazing how people open up when they want to chat about their, their animals. And yeah. you know, it reminds me of people go on their, you know, they say get a dog to go out on a date um, and, and, and find new friends and um, and I'm sure you've probably um, written some articles in the past about that, those types of things when you've been working as a journalist at the news newspapers that you've been on um but it's 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 a great icebreaker isn't it um having an animal there to 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 break that awkwardness of dealing with the situation with somebody when when you're meeting a stranger i think um mark i agree i'm taking up too much time of the question in here you had a couple of really good um questions you wanted to ask well I, i had a couple of comments and a couple of questions i was i wanted to congratulate laura because i think one of the things that i really enjoyed about this book was that it uh you know would i think there are so many stories where the dogs physically save people and um and you know some of these stories send uh um you know a shiver up your spine uh reading about um uh people in life-threatening situations sometimes being attacked by people um and the dogs intervene but um i also enjoy the stories where them they were uh, the dogs facilitated um, uh, people. And you talked about uh, Grace before, um, and a number of the other stories show that dogs have um, a multitude of ways where they can actually rescue us. Um, and um, and you you make that point in the in your introduction. Um, did, were they harder stories to find? The ones where where people were maybe not physically saved but were um, nonetheless um, brought back to life or um, uh, metaphorically or uh, were they more difficult to find those stories? Um, Interestingly enough, they were actually easier to find um, for some reason. Um, I'm not exactly sure why that that was. I think um, I'm very interested in those kinds of stories. Um, you know, I, I, I say about the book that, yes, there's many stories of physical rescue in it, but it's the, the stories of spiritual or kind of soul rescue, I think, that are in many cases the most moving stories in the book. Um, so perhaps it's, you know, it's like that situation where you never notice Hondas on the road until you drive a Honda kind of thing. So maybe it's because I look for those stories personally because I find them very moving myself, that they just seem to kind of be everywhere I looked. And, um, you know, for example, the story of PJ and Clove. Um, Clove is the pit bull who's on the cover of the book and her owner, PJ, had has struggled with drug and alcohol addiction most of his adult life. And Clove was the impetus that he needed to, to finally go into long-term recovery and he's been sober now for, for over seven years. And I had seen that story a long time ago before I had even signed the contract to write this book. And it was just one of those ones that spoke to me. And I thought, you know, one day I'm going to, 
I'm going to meet them or I'm going to talk to them. And I just kind of filed that one away. And it was interesting how a lot of them did actually come to me in a, almost a serendipitous kind of fashion. Well, I, I suppose this is more of a, a, um, a, uh, a social question, um, uh, that talk that I, the, the, one of the things that the book made me think of was that these stories seem to be getting more important. Um, do you think that there's a, um, a, you know, maybe where the social distance between people that's opening up, is that opening an avenue for particularly companion animals like dogs to step in and serve some of those roles that maybe um, family or uh, the village, if you like, um, served in previous generations now that we're more isolated and, and, um, and uh, do you think we depend on our dogs more as a consequence? Wow, that's a really interesting question. I've never really thought about it in those terms. I think potentially that's the case. Um, I mean, yeah, we do seem to be more sort of solitary, I suppose, in a lot of ways these days. But one thing that I have definitely found is that it's more acceptable, I suppose, to celebrate our dogs now and our love of our dogs in a way that perhaps it wasn't five, 10 years ago. Um, and I think social media has played a big part in that. I mean, you only have to look at all the, the pet accounts on Instagram or the groups for dog lovers on Facebook. You know, I'm in a bunch of those myself and every single day people are on there posting about what their dogs mean to them and everyone else will chime in in the comments of, oh, that's so beautiful or I needed to see this today and that kind of thing. So, I think maybe that has always been there. Dogs have always contributed to our life in that in that way. I think maybe we're just a bit um, braver now, maybe about about saying this is how much my pet means to me, and I'm not, not going to be embarrassed about it. Maybe I definitely see that. Um, that uh, I mean, in, even in the Brendan alluded to before, in our workplace, we regularly see the the um, the day to day importance of. Uh, of um, particularly dogs because of their social nature and the companions that they become for people. Um, uh, we see how important they are and, uh, and it's just wonderful to have a series of stories like this um, which, um, which highlight all the myriad ways, the physical ways, the protection from intruders or snakes, um, the, the decisions that they make. Um, I think it's a, um, and then also those um, personal, supportive, emotional um, uh, circumstances where they save people. I think it's a, an excellent compilation of stories to um, highlight the role that dogs play in our life. Thank you. <laughs> That's really nice. Yes. Now, now, Laura, I want you to talk to us about the writing process. I'm fascinated with the writing process. Um, Mark and I have had limited experience with writing of um, of technical articles for veterinary um, journals and and potentially some chapters for books, for instance. But they're all sort of technical writing, and it can be a real chore to do the writing process. And I'm I'm just fascinated about how how people go about the the day to day process of, of of say writing a chapter. Is it a grind for you, or do you have a set? You know, what's your protocol for? What do you sit down at nine in the morning and write to eleven, and then have a break, or is it is it sort of ad hoc? Um, and do you, do you do it at home, or do you get out of home to get away from the kids and the dogs to to do the writing process? Um, tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, I'm probably the worst person to answer this question because my creative process tends to be procrastinate for as long as possible and then panic. <laughs> That's how I've written all my books. Yeah, that reminds me of my study <laughs> technique. And every time, yes, I think we're all used to that. Yeah. Yes, every time I finish a book, and you know the great sense of relief that yes, I have managed to get it done by the deadline. I always say to myself, next time it will be different. Next time I'll be more organised, and I, you know I won't this it, I won't have this situation again. But my editor actually said to me, "This is just how you work, and instead of fighting it, you should just embrace it and understand that this is this is what happens." So for me. Um, or the way, the way I should do it is, you know, be interviewing people and writing the book at the same time. But the way I actually tend to do it is I like to have all my interviews done and transcribed. So I've just got a nice pile of notes in front of me before I start writing. So it works. It's just way more time consuming um, because inevitably, you know, there's people you can't get hold of or interviews get rescheduled or because I hate transcribing I'd always put that part off until the last possible second. So yes, it'll, it, it does yes. always feel a bit kind of chaotic, but um, I think because I, my background is in journalism and I started out on a daily newspaper and I've edited magazines and, you know, I've, I've worked in journalism in various capacities for 20 years now. So the deadline is everything to me. Um, and I just, I, what I've learned about myself is that I won't work unless I have, a, unless I'm hard up against a deadline. Um, so that definitely informs the kind of mad <laughs> scramble, you know, a month out or six weeks out from a deadline to, uh, to get everything done. But my motto is it always gets done. I don't often know how, but somehow it always gets done and it's worked for seven books. I literally just sent my seventh book to my publisher today. So it, it hasn't failed me yet for seven books. So maybe for the eighth one, I'll be more organized. <laughs> uh, well, that's disappointing, Laura. I was, I was hoping for some amazing insight about how Mark and I can um, become better, better writers and become better organized in our lives. But I think we're Fairly similar to you in that process, and yeah, uh, I hate to put <laughs> hate to put your foot in it, Mark. But I think um, you're probably a little bit worse than um, some other people with that procrastination bit, and you do the mad rush at the end and have an amazing result with your with your publication that you do at the end. But um, yes, I'd love to. Um, I'd I'd love to be able to sort of be um, sit down write for an hour or two and then um, hop back off again, uh, up again and um, do the same again the next day. But I'm exactly the same, I think, as you, Lauren, that I tend to go in bursts um, with things and I expect that's what you're sort of saying, that you, and once you've done that transcribing, and gee, so you transcribe all those um, interviews yourself. Um, you, you haven't thought of getting the, um, paying somebody to do it or is there an automated system you can do for that? Um, there are. Those systems, yes, they definitely exist. Um, but I'm, I suppose I'm a bit of a dinosaur in one respect because, um, I use shorthand. Um, as a journalist, I was trained to use, um, T-line shorthand. So I, when I'm interviewing someone, I'm scribbling down everything they say by hand using shorthand. So then I have to, only I, because it's like hieroglyphics, only I can <laughs> go back and transcribe it all. And, I've tried to use, um, you know, voice recorders and all that kind of thing. And I did have very early on in my journalism career, I, I pressed the wrong button on something and I, I lost a really important um, interview that I had tried to record and I vowed I would never do it again. Yes. <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't, I don't use voice recorders, um, which 
is a problem because if I yes, well, it'd be a lot easier. That's um, gee, that's a fair bit of work, but I could imagine. Gee, sh- shorthand is a bit like a, um, and it's a different world, isn't it? So, does everybody who, I presume, there's a specific um, um, language with shorthand, but by the sound of it, everybody has their own little take on it and develops their own little squiggles for particular words or phrases. Is that what ends up happening? That's right. Yeah. So, um, I did a journalism cadetship, which is the the equivalent of an apprenticeship, and the first several months of that were learning shorthand. So. I learned a standardized version of it, but you know, 20 years later, I don't, I don't think it really bears much resemblance to what the textbooks show. Um, yes, I think anyone yes. but more would um, read it. The next book you mentioned, your next book has just gone to the gone to the publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that or not? Are you yeah. are you under embargo, a non disclosure agreement? No, I can absolutely talk about it. Um, so in 2017, I, I wrote a book called Dogs with Jobs, which was about uh, working dogs, but not just the working dogs we we immediately tend to think of. So you know, not just sniffer dogs and and guide dogs, although they are in the book, but some really quirky canine careers. Um, You know, I had a a, a little dachshund in there that runs ultra marathons and I had the the Maritime Museum's Border Collie who chases seagulls away from the boats and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that came out in 2017 and I've actually just finished a children's version of that. Um, So it will have... Uh, some stories from the original book, but rewritten for younger readers. And then there's a whole bunch of brand new stories in there as well. So that will be coming out, I think that's July or August. Um, yeah, certainly mid-year. Um, yeah, so that one's literally in my editor's hot little hands at the moment and hopefully she's enjoying it and not going to send me a whole lot of notes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, so sorry. What? So, the follow-up. The name of that then would be just a follow-up from that last one. It doesn't have a title as yet. Um, I, I believe it's not going to be called Dogs with Jobs. Um, it'll have a, a new kind of more kid-friendly title. So, I will wait and see what <laughs> what that will be. And did you have um, somebody do the illustrations for that book, assuming that there's illustrations in it? Or is it a teenager sort of um, market? It's for readers aged nine and up. Um, so it has photographs in it rather than illustrations. Mark, um, you had another question you wanted to ask, Laura? Um, I was just, uh, um, once again, probably a little bit, um, uh, I, I was wondering how, there seems to be a lot of emotion in many of these stories, and I'm sure that um, that some of the ones that you came up against that um, that um, maybe there was I'm not explaining myself very well that maybe you came across philosophical issues that um, maybe the way people um, treated the animals to treated the dogs to be rescued was inconsistent. Did you have stories like that that maybe you couldn't include in the book? There weren't any that I that I wanted to include that turned out to be unsuitable. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty careful about um, doing as much research as I can on the dogs before I actually reach out to the owners, yeah. just to make sure that you know it's it's consistent with you know what what the theme of the book is and and it's going to have that um, inspiring you know life affirming yes. kind of um, feeling about it. This book. Laura, 
apart from being available at all good bookshops, The Rescuers, Incredible Stories of Life Saving Dogs. Um, thank you very much for allowing your publisher to send it to us. We got a copy each. Um, thank you very much. And, um, yeah, as you know, we, um, we're in the veterinary industry and, and it's all good too. We, we talk a lot about mental health on our on our podcast and it's good to have a bit of downtime and I think this is a good book for for veterinary staff to to purchase and read because it, it gives them something that they can latch on to because it's semi-related to the industry but it also has some amazing amazing true true to life stories of, of dogs that have saved people's lives both physically and, and certainly mentally as well so um yeah, I, 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 I still admire you, um, Laura, how, how you managed to chat to these people about some of these stories, even though you said at the start of the interview that they they tended to just unload um, most of their um, thoughts about their canine companions. But um, I think you must have a bit of a gift in being able to interview them and to eke all of that out from them. Oh, thank you. I mean, I certainly spent a lot of time crying <laughs> while interviewing people. Yes, <laughs> and Mark did too. Mark did too. <laughs> I always say I've done my job if I can make people cry, but making myself cry is the first um, the first step if I find myself sobbing during an, an interview then I always think I'm, I'm, I'm onto something that people will enjoy reading. Yes. Uh, Mark did you have any final sort of uh, questions or comments before we let Laura go? I was just um, wanted to thank uh, Laura for, uh, for allowing us to read it and uh, and um, and I, re- I just wanted to echo I think she used in one of her phrases about the um, the life affirming uh, that they they are inspirational stories, and as you said, Brendan, we spend so much time dealing with problems, and uh, um, but um, to take the time out of our busy day and and uh, um, just have that human animal bond um, re-emphasised and the reasons for it and uh, the reasons it's so important and the individual effects it have on people, um, I think that's a wonderful thing for us. So I appreciate the opportunity, Laura. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, you guys having me on. Thanks, Laura, and we'll have a link to your um, book on our website, vetgurus.com. Well, thanks, Laura. It's um, it's just it's a real privilege to be able to uh, first of all read such an uplifting book and one that, like the work we do, celebrates the uh, the human animal bond and um, just to get a bit of an insight into the way that a book like this comes to be. I've, I've no trouble recommending it highly to all our listeners, Brendan. Yeah, and it was fun actually interviewing a, a real author, Mark, as opposed to yourself and I, or I'm speaking for myself, Mark, but um, I've put my foot in it there, haven't I? I've, um, I've, um, I've um, insulted you um, um, on air, Mark, and I'm going to leave that in. Um, you know I love you. Um, you know I love you. On that note, Mark, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to play the outro and we'll talk to you all next week. Hopefully Mark um, will be here as well. to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time